Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your host for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program update from the 2019 American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting. Now, this is a program that we do every year, and I know many of you await this program because we try to do it as close after ASH as possible, so you get really the most state-of-the-art information as quickly as possible, given by experts, really, uh, to all of you, um, in an understandable format. And um, this program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as blood cancer organizations. And we are really, um, really very happy to be partnering with all of them. And also, we're very delighted with your interest in the program today. We have over 410 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Cyprus, India, Spain and the United Kingdom. So really, it's it's a global call, and uh, really, it's um, it's it's great that you've taken this next hour to spend with us to learn more about about this. Now, today's program is supported by Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Novartis Oncology, and Pharmacyclics LLC, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now we have wonderful speakers on the program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member Memorial Sloan Kettering. I'm sorry, um, our first speaker is Dr. Ruben Mesa. I'm Director Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, MD Anderson, Mays Family Foundation, Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine. And Dr. Mesa will be addressing um, really the purpose of the American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting, overview of blood cancers and myeloproliferative neoplasms, MPN, and MPN-specific treatment and research updates from ASH. So it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Messa. Well, thank you, Carolyn, for, for the kind introduction. It's always a pleasure to be on these, uh, on these teleconferences. I think they provide a wonderful uh, educational opportunity for patients uh, uh, around the world to be able to learn more about their disease and some of the updates. So the American Society of Hematology meeting occurred at the beginning of December in Orlando, Florida. This is truly the main global meeting for hematologists and those who investigate blood diseases and blood cancers around the world. So this year is almost 30,000 individuals. Those are physicians, scientists, nurses, pharmacists, all coming together, speaking about each and every type of, of blood disease, but in particular focused on the latest developments, new therapies in development, uh, new diagnostic uh, ways of diagnosing diseases, predicting how they might behave. So it, it's an incredibly important time that helps to set up the upcoming year in terms of efforts in these diseases. We're kicking off today's talk with uh, my talk focusing on the myeloproliferative neoplasms. 
<clears throat> and they're one of the many types of different blood diseases or blood cancers. And the blood cancers being diseases that can affect uh, the bone marrow where our blood is produced, as well as the lymph nodes that are involved with our immune system, the spleen, and all of the manifestations of the blood. And today you'll be hearing about updates, first for myself, on the chronic disease of the myeloproliferative neoplasms, then Dr. Morrow into the leukemias, Dr. Leonard on lymphomas, and Dr. Rajay on, on multiple myeloma. So these represent different types of the blood cancers. So first, let's focus on the myeloproliferative neoplasms. These are a type of chronic blood cancer that are based in the bone marrow and are typically found by an increase in the blood counts. And there's a range of diseases. They're all cousins of one another. It's central thrombocythemia, where patients have too many platelets. Polycythemia vera, where patients have too many red blood cells. Uh, systemic mast cell disease, where patients have too many mast cells. And even myelofibrosis, a bone marrow disease where the increase in any one of those cells can over time lead to the bone marrow developing scarring and having implications. Now what we've learned over these past several years is that these are an interrelated group of diseases that typically have a change in one of the genes in our blood as an origin, genes that help to control how our blood cells are made. So genetic changes in key genes that act as on-off switches, genes such as JAK2 or calreticulin or MPL that are central to that process. Changes in genes such as CKIT that are central for the disease of mast cell disease. And now many other genetic mutations that can arise and influence these diseases. Now as I speak of genes, these are genes that we all have, but these are changes in the genes that typically occur when we are in our adulthood. So these are not usually familial diseases that we pass along to our children or that we inherited from our parents, but changes in genes that develop over, uh, over our lifespan and are particularly associated with, with aging. Now, there were many updates as it related to these myeloproliferative neoplasms at the American Society of Hematology meeting. And first, I'll go into the diseases of essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera. These are long-term chronic illnesses. They give patients in the short term a burden of symptoms, a risk of blood clots or bleeding, rarely but sometimes problematic enlargement of the spleen. These are diseases that can progress into myelofibrosis or rarely into acute leukemia. <clears throat> One key update from this year's meeting was regarding the therapy of long-acting interferon or ropegulated interferon. Uh, as we treat these diseases, we frequently use medicines to try to adequately control the blood counts to decrease the risk of blood clots and bleeding, improve symptoms, and sometimes to shrink the size of the spleen. In long-term uh, information from a clinical trial on ropegulated interferon, it was shown that that drug the longer it was used, probably the greater the benefit versus hydroxyurea, which had been the prior standard therapy. Better control of counts, probably lower risk of blood clots, and better control of the molecular or the genetic changes with the disease. 
Next, I would highlight an important uh, advance for patients with systemic mast cell disease. When people with advanced mast cell disease continue to show very significant improvement with an inhibitor of the genetic mutation C-Kit that drives that disease. That drug from a company called Blue Pharmaceuticals <clears throat> has an important drug that's making a big impact, and we heard about exciting updates from those studies. Then let's switch to myelofibrosis, probably the greatest amount of movement regarding new therapies with myelofibrosis. First, in September of 2019, a second drug was approved for myelofibrosis. The first had previously been ruxolitinib. Now, fedratinib was approved in September. It's also a JAK2 inhibitor, and I presented on behalf of our fellow investigators that fedratinib showed good effectiveness uh, from our prior studies uh, being looked at in greater detail, even in individuals that had a low platelet count. We also saw the benefit of fedratinib used uh, for individuals that previously had been on ruxolitinib but had failed ruxolitinib. And then finally, we saw the impact of fedratinib to help to improve the myelofibrosis-related symptoms and improve quality of life. So very impactful on several levels. Then I would highlight two JAK inhibitors that are far along in development, uh, both updated data on pucridinib, which can help with patients that have low platelet counts, as well as mamalidinib, which also can help with patients with anemia with MF, and that both of these drugs also improving spleen and symptoms. Ongoing studies are enrolling at the moment to try to get each of these agents to become FDA-approved with those unique niches. Finally, there was great excitement regarding several new types of drugs that are being used alone or in combination, showing significant benefit. The first is regarding a drug that is called a BET inhibitor or bromodomain-4 inhibitor from Constellation Pharmaceuticals. That drug, when used alone or in combination with bruxolitinib, seem to have significant benefit in patients with myelofibrosis, in spleen and symptoms, but also potentially in anemia and in the scarring in the bone marrow. Now, those are early studies, so we don't know for certain the extent of that benefit, and it's not yet approved, but encouraging information that undoubtedly is leading to new upcoming trials. Next, there is a drug that is a BCL2 inhibitor called Nevitoclax, that when combined with uh, ruxolitinib, helped to overcome resistance to ruxolitinib in individuals that had previously received that. So again, very exciting data on a potential combination therapy. Finally, there's drugs with new mechanisms of, of action, such as a drug that is called an LSD-1 inhibitor. Uh, this is a drug from Imago Pharmaceuticals that in patients that had failed ruxolitinib showed benefit. So I'll conclude by saying a lot of exciting updates, both in individuals with chronic diseases such as ET and PV with long-acting interferon, uh, exciting drugs being developed that likely soon to be approved for mast cell disease, and, and many new options for myelofibrosis, including the approved fedratinib. And with that, I'll hand it over to Carolyn.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nessa. That was really very excellent and outstanding and a wonderful way to start the program today. And I, um, I, uh, so thank you so much. And before I introduce our next speaker, I just wanted to um, update our funding uh, credits for today's program. So today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Gilead, Jazz, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Novartis Oncology, a grant from Genentech, Pharmaceuticals LLC, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs. And so um, I just want to give you that information. And now I want to introduce our next speaker. Um, and I really want to thank our, our funders for supporting this program today. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Wild Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing an overview of, lymph of leukemia, of leukemia, leukemia-specific treatment and research updates from ASH, and take, talking with your healthcare team about your treatment options. It's really my great privilege and honor to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Oh, thank you, Carolyn. And uh, so you're getting a double dose of, of violent proliferative disorder physicians uh, as, we, as we start this conference. Um, I thank you for the invitation. I, I always look forward to uh, sharing updates from ASH. Um, so um, by, by way of starting, um, if we think about an overview of leukemia, obviously a, kind of a concerning word to hear if, if one gets that diagnosis or tries to understand what it is. Uh, but leukemia can come in several different forms. There obviously are some what are called acute and some chronic leukemias. And, and they range from uh, conditions that warrant you know, often a, uh, getting into the hospital and getting treatment quite rapidly um, to patients that um, are simply observed and, and monitored um, to see if symptoms or problems you know, may develop over time. And they, you know, on the different ends of the spectrum, acute myeloid and acute lymphoid leukemia, AML and ALL would fall into the first category. Those are those are conditions where um, the, the cells that are driving the diagnosis, uh, either lymphoid or myeloid, um, white blood cells, essentially different. Um, subsets of the white blood cell population are displacing the healthy blood. They're um, expanding and, and, and uh, taking out over the space in the bone marrow in the blood and, and um, leading to a reduction in red blood cells, platelets, and, and that, that's what leads to the urgent need for treatment. They can cause a number of different symptoms and, and complications as well, but um, both of those are quite uh, treatable, um, and I'm going to give you some updates on acute myeloid and acute lymphoid leukemia during the next few minutes. Chronic leukemias are obviously different. Uh, they're much more slower to develop, slower to develop symptoms. Um, for example, chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML, a disease I look after a lot, is often diagnosed um, surreptitiously, where patients might be going for a routine blood test or a procedure, and they have a blood check, and, and lo and behold, something's found, and um, also quite treatable. Um, in fact, they're highly treatable uh, form of leukemia. Uh, also can cause symptoms, however, um, with a buildup of extra blood cells, um, the spleen, a blood filtering organ, can, can grow. People can have flu-like symptoms, fever, sweats, things along those lines. Chronic lymphoid leukemia is uh, similar in, in many ways in that it can be um, what we call you know, an indolent leukemia, where maybe picked up on routine blood work, may not cause symptoms per se. People can develop uh, changes in their blood counts, anemia, uh, which is low red blood cells, or, or thrombocytopenia, low platelets, and have um, you know, symptoms from that. They may have swollen glands, um, and I think I'm um, going to save any more comments on the lymphoid leukemias for Dr. Leonard, who's going to give us an overview of lymphoma and probably touch on some, some treatments in that um, disease area. So the leukemias are a broad group of conditions with, with um, a different footprint, and, and, but all, um, thank goodness, um, have had advances in treatment. So let me turn to the leukemia-specific updates from ASH, and I'll, I'll try to cover a little bit from a number of different diseases. I think it'll be 
a little bit challenging to cover all of leukemia at ASH because there's actually a fair bit of um, progress. But um, I'll pick a, a study from each of uh, a few of the different diseases, and I'll start with myeloid leukemia, or AML. So acute myeloid leukemia has really seen a lot of advances. We haven't, we hadn't seen much in, in advance beyond what was good standard chemotherapy for many, many years, in fact, many decades, until a, a bit of an explosion in targeted therapy really has developed. And now we have lower side effect, sometimes oral, sometimes intravenous targeted treatments, to really allowing us to um, sort of select treatment based on the patient's diagnosis, the specifics, almost personalized, if you will, offer a lower side effect profile, help with the typical patient who may be facing um, AML, which um, can be at any point through life, although there is a bit of a, um, a peak in, in youth, but there's most cases are as we, um, as we age. So uh, other health problems and just um, being of a certain age means side effects and complications can be greater. So the study I'll mention was what was called a late-breaking abstract. You know something's good when someone might have been either hustling to try to get the data to this important meeting or it was saved for the, for the end. Um, there was a study called the Quasar study, which looked at um, adults with AML who had gotten standard treatment with chemotherapy. They might have gotten even additional chemotherapy to deepen their remission, but that was where things probably needed a hold, and they weren't eligible to move on to what's called a stem cell or bone marrow transplant. And this was a, the classic scientific study where people either got a medicine or they got a, a, a placebo or a blank. A lot of people worry about a trial like that because they they'd be scared that, you know, what would happen if I was on that trial and I got the placebo? These patients were already well-treated, so their leukemia was in remission, a complete remission, um, and they were, we were testing the idea, could we give a maintenance chemotherapy to try to prevent the leukemia from relapsing and, and allowing them to have better outcomes with leukemia? The drug was something called CC486, which is an oral form of a drug called azacitidine. Azacitidine is a newer form of chemotherapy that has much less um, side effects, it does lower the blood counts, but it doesn't cause a lot of the classic side effects people worry about with chemotherapy. Bottom line was this medication doubled the overall um, uh, longevity of, of people's um, remission and, and, and doubled the chances they would uh, not have their leukemia relapse, which was pretty dramatic. Um, it um, did have um, a different side effect profile compared to patients getting placebo, not surprisingly, but it wasn't... Um, very, very hard on patients. There was more GI um, or gastrointestinal side effects and some more blood count uh, side effects, particularly low white blood cells. But again, this is a leukemia-targeting drug, and that's, that's probably to be expected. And the good news was it didn't discriminate against people's leukemia type, their chromosome test results, or genetics, as we call it, and even the, the quality of the, of the remission, whether their platelets had fully recovered or not. So quite a good study. I think many of my colleagues, and, and I thought this was sort of a game changer, something we might think about using in that setting. Let me turn next to a trial in, in a condition called myelodysplasia um, or a, a, an early form of AML. Um, and <clears throat> so we know a lot more about um, either the pre-leukemia state when the blood, bone marrow may be damaged and, and blood counts may have changed, but it, it may not be a, an acute leukemia as, as of yet. And this is a this diagnosis of myelodysplasia or MDS. Um, can come after chemotherapy. It can come, um, meaning it can come as a complication of having other uh, treatments it can come from radiation treatment. It can come just as a diagnosis in and of itself. And it's often characterized by changes in a, in a, in a gene called P53, which is a natural sort of block, a cancer blocking gene that we have in our, in our bodies. And if there's a mutation or an alteration or that gene's missing, that can obviously take the brakes off and allow cancers or blood diseases to either develop or progress. So 
Um, this was a combination treatment for people who had what's called MDS or AML with a drug called APR246, which is a drug that actually helped that protein, that, that anti-cancer protein, work better. It stabilized it or put it into, a, into an active form or a wild type, as we call it. Um, they also got this medication, azacitidine, again. You're seeing a theme where we're using lighter forms of chemotherapy that are often um, quite, quite, quite good. Um, the, um, the response rates of this combination were very impressive in a group of patients who had this abnormal uh, cancer blocking gene issue in their leukemia, which can be tougher to treat or, or may not respond as well to standard chemotherapies. Um, uh, so this was an impressive advance and, and now allowed us to sort of pick out a, a subset or group of people that might need a, a targeted drug to help overcome something that made their cancer a little bit more complicated or more, more challenging to treat. Um, it also allowed them to go on to um, uh, bone marrow stem cell transplant more often and, and more successfully. So that's a real, a real boon. The last acute leukemia study I'll cover in, in, is, is in um, pediatrics, so just a uh, a shout out to the fact that we have both adult and pediatric leukemia and lymphoma and blood cancer specialists at, at ASH. And this was, a, again, I think probably a game changer that um, was a study for, for, for young adults or children who had ALL um, that had unfortunately relapsed. And there's good treatment for that, but there's definitely a movement towards a, a non-chemotherapy, literally, or a, you know, an alternative approach um, in, in leukemia across the board. And, and antibody or immune therapy, which I think we're going to hear about more in the rest of the conference, has really taken hold. So a, a drug called blenitumumab, which has the, the, the neat moniker of being called a bite antibody, a bispecific uh, antibody. This is an antibody that is like a double handshake. It, it grabs a T cell or an immune cell, and it also grabs the leukemia cells and introduces them to each other, and that's not a good meeting. Um, leukemia cells can be killed and, and cleared if they're um, recognized by the immune system. So that, that, that's how this drug works. And instead of chemotherapy, after patients had gotten their initial, what's called induction, and, and, and been put into remission, patient, the children or young adults with higher risk or higher risk of the, the um, leukemia not staying in remission were given either more chemotherapy, which you know, we know generally works, or this blenitumumab antibody, with the hope that it would be lower side effects and perhaps um, more, more efficacious. And in fact, it was. Um, it, it was clear that the side effects were better. Um, there, is some there are some specific side effects, and my other colleagues might get into this. This drug can cause um, a, a brisk immune response called cytokine release syndrome, and that was seen, but it wasn't dangerous per se. can cause some, some central nervous system side effects in some patients, but that was also wasn't um, beyond what had been seen before or expected. But it really allowed, again, patients to um, get their leukemia back in remission. These are younger adults and children, actually and allowed them also to move on to transplant. So a lot of specific approaches um, to in the acute leukemias and pre-leukemias. The last study I just want to mention um, is um, wasn't actually presented at ASH, but was um, published around the time of ASH, and that's in chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, in the New England Journal of Medicine, we were able to publish the first paper on a drug called Asiminib, or ABL001. So CML is a well-looked-after uh, form of leukemia with five FDA-approved drugs. Um, but clearly, we still need um, other tools in our, our armamentarium. And, and Asiminib is a different type of targeted drug in CML in that it, it blocks the leukemia protein CML called BCR-ABLE in a different way. So the same uh, teams that had developed the original drugs, which targeted one part of this abnormal protein, they, cho they chose another. So first off, it can be given by itself, and second, it may be complementary and, and could be combined um, with other drugs. So what this... Um, um, what this study showed 
was that the drug was safe, it was very well tolerated, it has a very good side effect profile, and it was effective by itself in a broad range of patients with, with uh, previous treatment for CML. And um, we're really encouraged by the, the, um, the continued progress with this medication, that it may offer a, a chance to combine drugs and better treat chronic myeloid leukemia or perhaps um, serve patients even just by itself in, in, in different studies. So stay tuned for that. And just a last word, I think we always want to mention to, that patients need to, and, and, and loved ones for that matter, need to um, talk to the healthcare team about treatment options. I'm the worst guy to have in, in clinic if I have a lot of new patients because I need to spend a lot of time with everybody. I want to go over the treatment options across the board. I want everyone to have their questions answered and understand. And I often will tell people, let's not decide today. Let's think about it. Let's sleep on it. So the dialogue between the, the treatment team and, and the um, and the patient family and loved ones and, and the, the uh, patient's team is so important. Um, and clinical trials should always be uh, something to ask about. Is there anything new, anything different? Um, how could we do our best here? Um, it's not a requirement. doesn't mean you're going to miss something if you don't enter a clinical trial, but it's always um, good to ask. So let me stop there so I don't uh, soak up too much time, and thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really um, excellent and really outstanding. And um, and a wonderful way to conclude in terms of that, doctor patient, the communication with the healthcare team is so important, and thank you for highlighting that as well, and all, as well as the new um, advances um, reported at, um, at ASH. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. John, John Leonard. Dr. Leonard is the Richard T. Silver Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology. He's Associate Dean for Clinical Research, Wall Cornell Medical College. He's also attending physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital, and executive vice chair, Wild Department of Medicine. And Dr. Leonard is going to be addressing an overview of lymphoma, lymphoma-specific treatment and research updates from ASH, and the role of clinical trials in precision medicine. It's really my great pleasure and honor to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Leonard. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Messner, and it's really uh, wonderful to be here again for uh, another cancer care program uh, summarizing ASH, uh, which uh, I think is uh, really an outstanding way for patients and caregivers to, and, and friends and family to get more information. So I will, uh, I have a relatively short amount of time. I'm going to give you a sense of lymphoma in general and then what's, what's new and how we advance what's new, uh, in these diseases. So lymphomas are tumors of the lymph cells and there are over a hundred different types of lymphoma. Um, and so the type of lymphoma rather than the stage of lymphoma is the key aspect of the prognosis and treatment. And this is uh, for most of the other blood cancers that we're talking about, the stage is probably less important than the specifics of what type of, of, uh, of uh, tumor uh, the patient is dealing with. So lymphomas are divided into Hodgkin lymphomas, which are largely treated with chemotherapy, although we have a number of immune therapies that are now uh, used and employed uh, in their standard treatment. The majority of lymphomas are called non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, and uh, there are many types of non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Most of those are called B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas. If you think of lymph cells as like the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the B-cells are the Army cells, and just like in the Army, you have many different types of, uh, of soldiers doing different jobs. You have many different B-cells doing different jobs, and depending on where the switches get broken, you get one of at least 40 different types of B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So most people statistically dealing with lymphoma are dealing with B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and they are typically 
treated or approached um, as a group of disorders that are called indolent lymphomas, a group that are called aggressive lymphomas, and then a set that are what we would term other types of lymphoma that have different prognoses and treatments. So aggressive lymphomas tend to grow quickly. Um, they are almost always treated with chemotherapy, but they uh, often can be treated and uh, often don't come back uh, after treatment, which is a good thing, um, although they uh, sometimes do come back and have a number of different new treatments in particular for, for that, those situations. The indolent lymphomas, uh, the most common of the aggressive lymphomas is called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. The indolent lymphomas, or low-grade or slower-growing lymphomas, tend to respond well to the treatments, but they tend to come back over time. So these tend to be lymphomas that people deal with over many years, often many decades. And for many people, it's something that is a chronic disorder in some ways like high blood pressure, diabetes, that you may not get rid of, but that you manage over a long period of time and often are able to control um, so that it's not causing uh, many different issues. So, so that is a, a very, very high-level look at uh, some of the key types of lymphoma. So I want to just focus on a couple of different key things that came out of the ASH meeting that I think are of interest to the patient to patients. So one is the concept of um, CAR T cells. CAR T cells have gotten a lot of attention, and many of you either uh, are familiar with them or may be asking about them. But the concept of a CAR T cell, it's called a chimeric antigen receptor or CAR T cell. T cells are immune cells that we all have. And one of the problems is, is that in a patient with cancer, the T cells in the body are not uh, strong enough or robust enough for a variety of reasons to get rid of the tumor cells and on their own. And so they need to be helped. And so the concept of a CAR T cell is that T cells can be removed for the blood, from the blood through a fancy blood donation technique. They can be then uh, adjusted in the laboratory and have genes inserted into those T cells to make them fight off tumor cells better. And these genes have a variety of different forms that make them either engage the immune system better or engage a tumor better. Then they are infused back into the patient often after some lighter chemotherapy to kind of make space for these T cells to come back in. And these T cells can set up shop and go after the tumor cells. So this is a hot area in almost all of the diseases we're talking about today. Uh, and these are being studied in myeloma. You may hear more about that. They're being studied in leukemia. These are FDA approved in acute lymphocytic leukemia in a subset of patients and in diffuse large B cell lymphoma in a subset of patients. And so the, the take-home message of what was being presented at ASH is just more data suggesting that these drugs can work for a subset of patients, typically with disease that has come back or what we would call relapsed or sometimes refractory where the disease is at standard therapies and, and come back. And so the, the uh, approach here, again, uh, for lymphoma, these are typically approved for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the most common type of aggressive lymphoma if the disease has come back, and they're in a number of different clinical trials. And the net is that there are additional data suggesting that there are ways to potentially make these treatments work better, more effective, 
and make them less toxic because while they can be relatively um, manageable for the vast majority of patients, in some cases the immune reaction that's part of uh, this uh, enterprise um, can be quite significant where patients need a lot of supportive care, can have uh, almost appear like they have an infection going on with high fevers and sometimes need to be uh, receiving the level of care that one might need in an ICU. So these are not without uh, consequences, so to speak. So the net of the ASH data were efforts to try to show that these can be made to work better, more data, more follow-up with more patients, and also exploring these data in other types of lymphoma they are approved uh, in a general sense in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the most common of the aggressive lymphomas. We saw some data in mantle cell lymphoma, one of the chronic types of lymphoma. Uh, and um, I think that we'll continue to see more and more of these. And so this is something that patients who are considering therapies for lymphomas and perhaps some of the other disorders we're talking about today should at least ask their doctor about because they're being studied in clinical trials and in some cases in, in general use. Another area that I want to mention is uh, the concept of what's called circulating tumor DNA. This is something that is also being studied in other tumors that we're talking about today. The idea is that tumor cells in the body can shed parts of their DNA into the bloodstream. And so the concept of ctDNA, it's also sometimes called cell-free DNA, um, and those are not quite the same terms, but have some overlap. The concept is, is that rather than doing a biopsy of the tumor, one could potentially, and this is not yet ready really for prime time, although it's moving forward, one could potentially sample the blood and isolate some of the DNA in the blood, some of which represents what's going on in the tumor. And so it could potentially uh, help with two scenarios. One is that it may give information about the tumor rather than doing a biopsy because you're sampling, by sampling the blood, you're getting a sample from the, re the entire body to some extent um, rather than biopsying one lump of the tumor. Um, it's obviously easier to draw blood than do a biopsy in many cases. And then also by measuring low levels or looking for low levels of the tumor DNA in the blood, one might potentially identify low levels of tumor that you don't see on a scan but could see kind of a needle in a haystack in the blood that could then be used to guide therapy or deal with a relapse sooner. Um, these are all things that are very exciting. There were a number of uh, presentations on this that are of interest, um, and uh, I think that, that this is something that people will continue to hear more uh, and more about. Just at a high level, to finish up in my last couple of minutes, I'll mention a couple of other things. There were some data in follicular lymphoma, the most common of the indolent lymphomas, suggesting that the addition of a drug called lenalidomide, also called Revlimid, to rituximab, one of the antibody treatments that's commonly used in B-cell lymphomas, can improve outcomes for patients. It adds some side effects, but it can improve the response rate, meaning the rate a number of patients where the disease shrinks, and it can keep the disease quiet longer in these indolent, low-grade, slower-growing lymphomas. So something to ask your doctor about if you're dealing with an indolent lymphoma and need treatment. And then additionally, uh, there were some data with limited stage aggressive lymphoma where it's in a limited number of areas, not 
um, um, in multiple places, but perhaps in one or two areas, suggesting that we can potentially treat patients with limited stage aggressive lymphomas um, with less chemotherapy and without radiation based on using a PET scan to guide therapy. So that's uh, important new news there. There were a number of other uh, studies with new drugs, a lot of things out there. Um, and then finally, I just want to mention two, two areas that, uh, or one really one area that is of, of note, and this is for patients treated with the RCHOP regimen, a combination of chemotherapy and, and immunotherapy. RCHOP is commonly used for aggressive lymphomas, also sometimes used for indolent lymphomas. The take-home message, there were two studies um, that suggested that patients treated with RCHOP over time can have changes in their bone health, meaning that the bone uh, issues around osteoporosis and turnover of bones can be affected by this therapy. And why that why that is that important? Because many patients get this treatment, and if those patients are at risk for osteoporosis or bone fractures over time following that treatment, that's something that uh, obviously we would want to prevent complications of that, um, which, as you know, can be bony fractures, which can be quite problematic and painful and, and other things. And so that's something that I think we're getting more attuned to, the bone health after lymphoma therapy, something people should ask their doctors about based on some of the data presented at ASH. And I'll conclude by just reminding you that pretty much everything presented at the hematology meetings, all of these uh, data with new drugs, and all of this information about how patients do, how patients can be best treated, are in the most robust way generated through clinical trials. Uh, studies of new drugs, of new treatments, where patients are receiving treatment in an organized way. Information is gathered that can be used um, to decide if a new drug adds value, who should receive it, and how patients do with certain treatment regimens. And so clinical trials are exceedingly important. The concept of precision medicine is a feature of certain clinical trials, the idea being that patients with the, uh, a diagnosis of a blood cancer of one form or another um, may actually have within a group of patients having that diagnosis, there are variations within uh, that patient population where certain drugs may be more or less likely to work based on the features of the tumor, and these features are being used to develop new drugs and to target treatments more specifically to the patients who can benefit the most while sparing the patients where an individual treatment is perhaps less likely to work. So these are uh, important aspects of uh, therapy, of advancing things further, and I think uh, are worth when patients need treatment, uh, talking with one's doctor about to see if these sorts of approaches, including clinical trials, are applicable uh, to one's individual situation. So with that, I will stop, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of these issues a little bit later in the discussion. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Leonard. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation um, on the updates um, on lymphoma from ASH. So thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Nupur Rajay. Dr. Rajay is Director, Center for Multiple Myeloma, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Rajay will be addressing an overview of multiple myeloma, multiple myeloma-specific treatment and research updates from ASH, and talking with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, including physical activity. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Rajay. 
Thank you so much, Carolyn. Uh, as have all my preceding speakers uh, alluded to, this is a really enjoyable uh, uh, call to be on because not only do I get to talk about uh, some of the really exciting advances that we are making in multiple myeloma, but more importantly, you know, hearing about uh, uh, some of what's happening with the other blood-related cancers is really exciting. And what you will hear on this call is a theme which some of uh, my predecessors have already alluded to with the technology as well as with some of the therapies like the immunotherapies which we will talk about in a little bit. And I'd really like to thank all the um, uh, listeners also to call in on a busy uh, sort of week right before the holidays. So with that, you know, what I will start out by doing is give you a little bit of an overview of what multiple myeloma is. And as most of you know, myeloma is a disease of the bone marrow and it is caused by certain cells called plasma cells. Now these plasma cells are very important uh, white blood cells which belong to the immune uh, system and what these cells do is really protect you against infections by producing antibodies which are also referred to as immunoglobulins. Now normally plasma cells in the bone marrow make up about 5% of cells and for reasons that we don't completely understand Sometimes these plasma cells have something wrong with them genetically and by doing so they start growing uncontrollably wherein they're called myeloma cells and the myeloma cells then occupy more of the bone marrow which is then resultant in what we refer to as a multiple myeloma. With multiple myeloma, there are different symptoms which can occur, and these symptoms can be as a consequence of that protein or the antibody which is produced by these plasma cells in the blood or the urine, as well as symptoms related to the marrow being occupied by these plasma cells. Some of the common symptoms associated with this include bone pain and anemia, and uh, this occurs in about 80% of patients. And then other things that can be seen in people is increased incidence of infections or kidney problems as well as high calcium levels. All of these symptoms obviously can be corrected once the myeloma is addressed and once we treat this disease. In recent years, we've been extremely fortunate. We've had lots of FDA approvals, so much so that very recently, just about, I want to say about um, a couple of months back, we had the most recent or maybe the ninth approval for the treatment of myeloma with a drug called Selenexor, and this is a drug with a very different mechanism of action, which we will talk about in a little bit. But with all of these new advances in the treatment of multiple myeloma, what you have experienced and what you have seen is uh, myeloma has become a very, very different disease. Uh, patients with myeloma are continuing to do extremely well, and we're using medications which are not quite chemotherapy-like drugs wherein people can continue with going about their lives by being on some of the medications uh, that we will be um, talking about. At this year's ASH meeting, the hematology meeting, again, lots of uh, uh, presentations and a lot of them which are going to have an impact on the direct care of patients with multiple myeloma. And I just want to dovetail into what Dr. Leonard has mentioned about the 
circulating uh, DNA. And before we talk about therapies, I think I always like to start out by talking about what are we doing in terms of diagnostics. And very similar to the lymphoma world, we are also looking at ways of doing liquid biopsies so that one doesn't have to go through a bone marrow biopsy and understanding from the bloodstream itself whether or not we can get more information on the uh, cancer type. And therein we are doing very similar things like looking at circulating DNA. We are also looking at circulating tumor cells to give us more genetic information of the disease. But along the same lines, we have another test which got a lot of press at this year's uh, hematology conference and that's called mass spectrometry. It's a new way of looking at immunoglobulin. Most of you are familiar with how we look at monoclonal proteins by doing the serum protein electrophoresis. Now the mass spectrometry is a more specific and more sensitive way of picking up very low levels of these immunoglobulins thereby allowing us to better monitor the disease as well. I think a lot of you have heard about MRD or minimal residual disease detection and we're using MRD testing more and more whether it be using a flow cytometry based approach or whether we use a DNA based or gene uh, sequencing based approach but MRD testing is being done and this is largely being done because we are seeing such excellent responses with the treatments we have now for multiple myeloma. So a lot of exciting things going on in sort of the diagnostic and monitoring uh, ways of uh, uh, how we take care of our patients with multiple myeloma. Most of these are not quite ready for prime time just as yet. We're using them in the context of clinical trials. So stay tuned, and I do think these are going to be very impactful in some of our decision-making of how long to continue therapy and when one needs changes of therapy over the course of the next few years. In terms of treatment, again, you know, with every year we see a lot of excitement with myeloma treatments. This year what we found was in the newly diagnosed space several different clinical trials which were presented wherein we are now combining drugs. Up until last year we were talking about three drug combinations, but at this year's ASH meeting we had two or three presentations where we have now quadruplets being presented for the treatment, initial treatment of multiple myeloma. So two big trials there, one a European trial and another one from the United States. The European trial is called the CASAPIA trial where bortezomib was combined with thalidomide and dexamethasone and to that was added the monoclonal antibody against CD38 called deratumumab. Now this quadruplet showed very, very high response rates and very good control of the disease without a lot of toxicity. So really in the newly diagnosed space, I do think we may be moving towards four drug combinations for the majority of patients. In the United States, a very similar study was done, and this study is referred to as the Griffin trial, and this Griffin trial compared three drugs to four drugs, and in this case, instead of thalidomide, lenalidomide, which was also used in the lymphoma trial earlier that you heard about, uh, was used in combination with bortezomib and dexamethasone, and the fourth drug was the monoclonal antibody, which is deratumumab. And again, with this four-drug combination, we've seen unprecedented 
sort of response rates of close to 100% with a very high proportion of patients developing minimal residual disease negative state at the end of initial therapy with these four drug combinations. Again, the four drug combinations, the big question is always, are my patients going to be able to tolerate this? And the good news is because these are not necessarily chemotherapy-like drugs, combining these drugs has been very easy to do. And in general, uh, most patients seem to tolerate these four drug combinations with a little bit in the ways of modifying uh, the dosages and the schedules in certain patients if they have other medical problems associated with this. We talked about late-breaking abstracts also earlier on in this discussion. We did have a late-breaking abstract at this year's uh, hematology meeting for myeloma as well. And in this case, it was, again, for patients where the disease has come back, uh, where you use carfilzomib, which is a proteasome inhibitor, and in this time in combination with deratumumab. And we found that the combination of carfilzomib with deratumumab ended up with really high response rates making a real big difference in disease control in patients who are getting the triplet combination uh, 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 in this patient population. Again, generally well tolerated. You heard a little bit about immunotherapies, both with the leukemias and the lymphomas, and the theme of immunotherapies and the excitement around immunotherapy continues in the myeloma world. What we have uh, begun to appreciate is we do have a great target, and in uh, myeloma we target a protein called BCMA, which stands for B-cell maturation antigen. This is a protein which is in general present on almost all myeloma cells, and there are different ways of targeting this BCMA. Uh, there, it can be targeted with a monoclonal antibody, such as a conjugated antibody, and we will see if we get our first conjugated antibody approved for the treatment of multiple myeloma very soon. And then what was presented at this year's ASH was a bite antibody against BCMA. Bite, as you've already heard in this conference call earlier on, is a bispecific T-cell engager, wherein you have an antibody with two arms, one targeting the tumor cell, the other targeting the T-cells, and together this uh, antibody activates the T-cells, brings them to your myeloma cells, kills those myeloma cells, and then controls disease. Obviously, the very, very exciting data with this bite antibody in the treatment of myeloma patients, not without toxicity, because when you kill those myeloma cells, you do see what was already alluded to, which is CRS, or cytokine release syndrome, and you can also see another side effect, which is neurotoxicity, which needs to be managed appropriately. But really, this is our first venture, like blinatumumab, with my, uh, in the lymphomas and the leukemias, we have this bite directed against BCMA. We saw a lot more of cellular therapy as well. So CAR T cells, you've already heard about it from last year's ASH. At this year's ASH, there was again more data presented on different bite antibodies targeting the same protein, which is BCMA. And what we found here was extremely high response rates 
90 to 100 percent of people respond to uh, the CAR T cell uh, therapy, and the responses are extremely robust. Again, not without toxicity, and that's why I do think these need to be done at centers wherein you have the expertise to take care of problems such as neurotoxicity and cytokine release uh, syndrome. So a lot of new exciting things. We talked about Selenexor and a few other new drugs. There are new immunomodulatory drugs in addition to lenalidomide and pomalidomide like iberdomide and newer ones with numbers on them. So a lot of excitement coming down the immunomodulatory uh, path as well. Um, so given that we have so many different um, options available to our patients, obviously this can be a little bit complicated in terms of navigating the landscape. And I would really urge all of you uh, to reach out to your caregivers, reach out to your teams who take care of you, look into whether or not there are clinical trials which are applicable to you all, and really talk about what's new, what's different, and does it apply to you, and can it make a difference in where you are with your uh, disease at that uh, current time. So with that, I'm going to stop here so that we have room for discussion as well, and uh, I'll open it up and send it back to Carolyn so that she can go into the discussion phase of this conference call. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roger. That was wonderful, really outstanding, and just a lot of wonderful information um, from from Ash um, on multiple myeloma, so very important. And I think we're going to move right into the questions. I'll do a, a, a summation of some cancer care services as we conclude the program, but let's, I want to be sure we take some of your questions um, right away. So um, we're going to move right into the question phase. Um, and um, I'm going to ask Norman to bring all of our speakers on board. And, um, and then... Uh, and then we'll actually um, see if we'll try to take as many questions as possible. Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Uh, thank you so much, Carolyn. Excellent seminar. Um, I'm a cancer survivor myself and a registered nurse and social worker. I have to ask these questions that are very important for other people. Um, I'd like to know about the vitamins with the K2 and strontium for osteoporosis, if it does help, and what are any side effects from strontium as compared to calcium, because if you get sometimes a high calcium, since I've gotten high calcium levels, what's the danger in that? as maybe taking, I know I was told about calcium citrate, I mean calcium citrate, but I'd like to know more about side effects from the other vitamins to help for calcium or your osteoporosis, which is, and it doesn't cause any other effects. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, um, Stephanie, for that question. Um, Dr. Um, Rache, would you want to address that question just in general terms? Um, and then, of course, we would suggest um, that Stephanie, of course, discuss this with her healthcare team as well. Sure. No, absolutely. I think this is a really important question, Stephanie, so thank you for bringing it up. And, you know, I think Dr. Leonard mentioned how underappreciated osteoporosis is in the cost, uh, uh, cancer community in general. Um, now, hypercalcemia, that is high calcium levels, uh, can be a 
side effect of uh, the cancer itself, specifically the cancer I treat like multiple myeloma. So in general, before you start treatment, we do tell people not to be on calcium. Uh, but once you're on treatment, and specifically patients for their osteoporosis are on a bone-targeted agent, and these are either bisphosphonates or are uh, drugs like denosumab. Uh, uh, most of these drugs have one of the side effects which tends to be low calcium levels. And in the, that case, we do ask that you supplement with calcium. And it's in general about 500 milligrams of elemental calcium should be given to patients along with vitamin D. So having vitamin D, and that should be about 2,000 units with calcium, is what is recommended if you're on an anti-osteoporotic medication. Prior to starting on that, I would be careful and talk to your healthcare provider whether or not you have high calcium levels. As far as other uh, vitamins causing hypercalcemia, typically they should not and they should not be interfering with your calcium levels. But the one thing which I do think is important to remember, you know, we do have other things that people do for uh, GI irritation, GERD, things like Tums, and people tend to pop a lot of Tums sometimes if they have belly-related problems, and that does contain a lot of calcium, and those kinds of things can end up with uh, more calcium in your bloodstream, which can be dangerous to people. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, um, and um, did Dr. Leonard, do you want to add something to that as well? Did you? No, I think it's a good it's okay. a good uh, summary that uh, you just heard from Dr. Raj, and uh, I think that uh, it's really something one needs to talk about specifically with one's doctor for one's individual situation. Well, thank you. Thanks for um, We have a question from one of our online participants, um, and I'm, I guess this question probably applies to both Dr. Morrow and Dr. Leonard. Um, so um, this um, is the question. Would you kindly elaborate on new therapies for the treatment of graft-versus-host disease presented at the ASH meeting? So would, would either of you go first or... Uh, I'd let Dr. Morrow, uh, okay. if he's okay. if he's happy to take that, is probably more applicable uh, and okay. more commonly okay. done in patients with leukemia. Okay, Dr. Morrow. Dr. Leonard, could you just comment in general then? Um. Sure, sure. So the concept of graft-versus-host disease is that the when graft-versus-host disease is uh, related to um, a situation when someone receives what we call an allogeneic bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant, where um, the patient typically gets some element of chemotherapy uh, to treat their uh, disease, whether it's a, a leukemia or lymphoma, most commonly leukemia. Um, the patient receives stem cells or blood stem cells from a donor, um, so that's what we call an allogeneic stem cell transplant as opposed to an autologous stem cell transplant. Um, meaning from oneself. Um, and in the allogeneic stem cell transplant, even though the donor is matched, um, meaning that there are some immunologic uh, similarities or matching between the person receiving the cells and the person giving the cells, um, the immune systems are not perfectly matched. And part of that is good because that helps to fight off the donor's immune cells, help to fight off the 
tumor, the tumor cells that might be remaining. Um, the downside is something called graft-versus-host disease, um, which is when the graft or the donor cells can um, damage the, um, the recipient or the person receiving the cells, and that can cause a number of different immunologic effects. Um, and there are different phases to this. This is a major area of um, of uh, stem cell transplantation um, to try to manage this uh, process most uh, most efficiently um, because the idea being that you don't want to have those side effects which can be serious and either affect the person's quality of life, cause problems uh, in the short term or uh, uncommonly but occasionally can be quite severe and life-threatening. And so um, there have been a number of different attempts to uh, try to minimize this graft versus host effect to these are typically with drugs that affect the immune system one way or another or to give different medications to try to moderate or prevent um, graft versus host disease from happening to begin with or to deal with it if it occurs and so um, what I would just say at a very high level is that um, stem cell transplant doctors have a number uh, of new uh, uh, techniques to, to do that and I think this is something that will be contributing to making allogeneic stem cell transplants, transplants from someone else, um, hopefully more safer, more safe in the future. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and um, there is another question here um, on um, multiple myeloma um, for Dr. Roger. Um, and thank you very much, Dr. Leonard, for answering that question, for addressing sure. it. Um, and Dr. Roger, um, um, who would be a candidate for quad therapy and multiple myeloma? What comes next if patient relapses? You could answer that in a general way. Sure. So again, a great question. And quadruplet therapy is a very recent um, uh, uh, thing. I think we need to wait a little bit longer. We've obviously, based on what was presented at this year's meeting, we're seeing very high response rates. And in general, we're seeing that patients are uh, tolerating this treatment. Now, should everybody be getting a quadruplet therapy at the time of diagnosis? I'm not quite sure we're there yet, and therefore we need to wait and watch. But in general, I think the future would be to try to do quads. When I say quads, it's generally, you know, we're using these quadruplet therapies at the very beginning of treatment. And over time, once their disease is under control, they go on to sort of maintenance treatments, which is pretty standard. And most times we are using lenalidomide maintenance. So if and when the disease comes back, the idea would be to go back to something else in combination. And I've kind of alluded to some of the new things that we have available. So I do think there's a lot of different options out there which one can get to. The other piece that I would like to add is the idea of using quadruplet therapy in myeloma is to really deepen responses. And with that, we are hoping to see that control of disease with that initial therapy is going to be very, very long. Uh, we just have to wait for that follow-up and see if that really happens. Um, so the hope is that the chances of us going to the next line of therapy is not going to be for many, many more years to come. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Roche. And another question for Dr. Leonard. Um, what do you recommend for residual neuropathy of the hands after rechop, RCHOP for lymphoma? Well, uh, so neuropathy is a uh, is a is something that can it basically is a 
condition where uh, the nerves, uh, typically nerves in the fingers and toes uh, of the body, um, can sometimes be affected and be affected either by the underlying um, uh, tumor cells and, and byproducts of the tumor cells. This can be seen in certain lymphomas uh, and certain uh, other related disorders or the treatments uh, can sometimes cause this. And depending on the situation, different drugs can cause uh, what we call neuropathy, where there's either pain in the fingers and toes, or weakness, or numbness and tingling uh, of the areas. This is something that's seen in, again, a variety of different treatments, can also be seen uh, in certain medical conditions. It can also be uh, exacerbated um, by other underlying medical conditions that patients may have, such as diabetes, uh, being being one of those as well as several others. And so um, it's really hard to generalize how to approach this. This happens um, in a minority of patients, I would say. It depends a bit on the specific drug that might be implicated in this. Um, and so the typical uh, approach, if it's happening during treatment, may be to uh, change the dose or the frequency of the drug to minimize that effect. Often, depending on the drug that's involved, um, they, they, this can improve when the treatment is completed. Uh, it may not entirely go away. Um, and then there are a number of different drugs that can sometimes uh, help with this. These are uh, drugs that can uh, be used for other neurologic conditions. And certainly, I would say in my practice, if someone is having significant enough what we call neuropathy, that it's either causing pain that's interfering with their day-to-day -day life or causing weakness or numbness that's interfering with day-to-day -day life and functioning, that we often would have a patient see a neurologist to make sure that there aren't any other underlying problems and to help perhaps uh, do some testing that can put us in the best direction uh, to, uh, to resolve those issues. So it's hard to give a one-size-fits-all answer. I would say talk about this with your doctor consider seeing a neurologist um, depending on how obvious uh, the situation is as far as a cause and what's expected out of it um, because there are many different causes and because this issue um, can be important and affect patients' quality of life, it's important to get a good answer and the best treatment for that. That said, the vast majority of treatments for the diseases that we're talking about don't have this as a side effect, but clearly for those patients that, uh, that do uh, have this uh, occur, it can be a significant thing. Uh, and again, review it carefully with your doctor. Excellent. Thank you so much. And do you want to mention something about rehab medicine sometimes for these patients as well? Certainly. Um, re depending on the situation, rehabilitation medicine can be helpful. Um, this is uh, whether it's physical therapy to help with walking or occupational therapy to help with the functioning of the hands. Uh, and so certainly if this is getting to a point that, again, it's interfering with someone's ability to function, to button their shirt, for instance, uh, or work on a computer, uh, or uh, obviously uh, do things like take care of oneself, cook, uh, brush one's teeth, et cetera, or walk around, um, those are things, scenarios where one uh, may get very uh, significant benefit from physical therapy as part of this evaluation or, again, rehabilitation more uh, medicine more broadly. 
Oh, thank you so much. And I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call. It's, it's, I know it's a call that everyone waits for after Ash, and you certainly, um, our speakers have been phenomenal. I have to, I want to thank all our participants who asked such great questions, and so I want to thank all of them as well, and all of you who have been listening. And just in concluding and wrapping it up, I just want to actually, um, just briefly go over the services of cancer care. Um, and um, those services are available to you because I know, well, first of all, I want to say that many of you may still have questions. So if you have a question or if you, for example, even asked a question, we don't want to sidestep your healthcare team. So you definitely want to go to your healthcare team um, for any of your questions that you may have. Um, in addition to that, um, some of you also may, I know, like to have sort of credible sources to go to to get additional information, but always vet it past your healthcare team. So we do suggest um, resources like the um, many of the organizations that we partner with on this program today, they have wonderful resources for you. And when you get your evaluation, which will probably be tomorrow, um, in the evaluation will be all the resources that were mentioned both on the brochure, on the printed brochure, and on, the, on our website as well as resources for you to go to. In addition to that, we'll also include the National Cancer Institute as another resource for you. Um, they have a toll-free number, but they also have a website and um, where you can have a lot, there's a live chat feature. So that's another wonderful resource. And you'll, again, you'll be getting all that information, um, you know, when you get the materials from us. Um, However, um, for those of you who want to pursue help from cancer care, let me tell you what we can offer you. So cancer care um, has a staff of oncology social workers, um, and they are here to provide a host of services from practical to financial assistance, and that's, these are very practical things, help with transportation, home care, child care, um, you know, many of the things that really are a challenge to all of you. We have a copay foundation as well that often helps with some of the medications that you're taking, the treatments you're taking. And if we don't, if our copay foundation doesn't have it, so many other organizations have them as well. And I would be remiss in not calling out the Leukemia Lymphoma Society as a, for blood cancers as a wonderful resource for both, for both, for also these resources as well. Um, in addition, we do offer a counseling or a chance to talk to somebody, one of our social workers, about any of the concerns you may have. So uh, concerns about, for example, um, just dealing with the thought that you have a blood cancer or um, actually talking to your children or grandchildren about your not sometimes feeling well or getting treatment or actually, um, or as long as we're working, talking, determining issues in the workplace. That's another issue that we help people address. So many different topics, or just how do I do, deal with this myself is another question people often ask. Um, but so many different questions. And so calling our 800 number, which is one 800 813 4673 or going to our website www.cancercare.org is a great place you can post a question there as well so for people in the US and internationally it's a great resource as well in addition we do have more of these workshops and a lot of them coming up actually um, in to, in 2020 which is soon to occur so actually that's that's a um, a lot of workshops you'll see on our website, for those of you who visit our website. And we also offer support groups. And our support groups are done on the telephone and online. And lots of people find the online support groups very, very helpful to them. Um, they are... They cover all different age groups, so from young adults to older adults to middle-aged adults to different, all different types of, um, of uh, blood cancers and other types of cancers as well. Um, for caregivers and partners, spouses, 
um, adult children. So it really the whole range of all these different relationships and experiences that one has. We have a number of LGBT programs as well. So just really programs for everyone. And um, I would say our, we, I think we have over 138 online support groups and many, many, many telephone support groups. Um, and in addition, we do have publications, so we do have also written materials that you can access from Cancer Cure and order them from our website. And um, so that gives you just a, a thumbnail sketch of all that we do, um, and we hope you'll take advantage of it. And most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to think that you're alone in coping with a blood cancer, any type of cancer that there are so many organizations out there, including Cancer Care, that can help you. And although we do know and recognize that you may feel alone sometimes, and particularly at this time of year where there's so much talk about holidays and, and whether it's your holiday or not, nevertheless, that it's all around you, um, it, it has an impact on everybody. So we do want you to know that you can call us for any help that we can provide, um, and we're here to help you. And I do also want to mention the American Cancer Society does have a 24-hour call center, 365 days a year, and that will be listed as a resource for you as well. And so there are so many different organizations out there that when you're feeling kind of like it's hard, you're having a hard day or something like that, take advantage of that. And also never forget your healthcare team to bring up any issues, or if it's a weekend or holiday time coming, just ask about who's on, on call, who's, who's covering, so if anything does come up, um, that, they're, that they're available for you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.